Psalm 7 is where we're going to begin. Let's stand together and let's read this passage, and then we will see what the Lord has for us this morning. Psalm 7, the Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me or pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O Lord, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Make, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Lord, we come to you this morning asking, Lord, for you to have your way with us, that your Holy Spirit would, would move in our hearts in such a way that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us, and that we, uh, what we are not, Lord, you would make us. And what we have not, Lord, you would give us. And Lord, allow me to be your messenger, Lord, to faithfully proclaim your truth so that we can be built up in the faith, convicted of our sin, confident in you, and see the beauty and the glory of the gospel through Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a question. It's a very simple question. Why do we spend so much time studying the Bible expositionally week by week, seeking to work through a book of the Bible, digging deep and gaining an understanding of how we can apply it in our lives? Well, it's so that we can learn who God is and what he is like. Many of you know the famous quote by A.W. Tozer. You can probably rattle it off with me. What comes into our minds when we first think about God is the most important thing about us. Now friends, that is such an important statement, isn't it? Because our view of God 
shapes now our understanding of the world and what we're to do with that world. Now, why is this so important? Because when we come to the Bible, we come to have our thoughts about God informed and shaped. If our minds are not informed and shaped by the Bible, regarding the character of God in particular, then we will just make God in our own image or in the image that our culture wants him to be like. And friends, in the end, that is simply idolatry. And so, friends, it's so important that we come every Sunday to be under the Word of God, to allow it to affect us and to shape our understanding of who God is and what He is like. And anytime I or an elder or a faithful pastor stands before you to proclaim the Word of God, what you are saying in your hearts is this. You're saying, I want you to proclaim the gospel so that Jesus, so that, so that Christ, so that God can be restored to his rightful place on the throne of my heart. Listen to what Cotton Mather, uh, the great Puritan preacher, says. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. And so my job every Sunday is not just to preach a nice sermon, but it's to assume that when you have come in this room, that somehow in some way, God is not seated on that throne. And through his word, he is going to be restored. And you ought to come in here saying, I may not realize where he's not on the throne, and I want the pastor, through the word of God, to challenge my heart and to, to put God back in his place. Now, obviously, we don't move God around, right? You understand the, the ideology they're talking about there, that, that we can knock God off the throne, so to speak, because we're so consumed with what we're going through. Or maybe we have an idol that we're worshiping. Or maybe there's a sin that we are consumed with. And friends, it's a challenge for us because so often when we are dismayed or discouraged or in, in distress, it is not God who is on the throne of our hearts, Lord. It is something else. It is some challenge, it's some thought that we have, some fleshly desire or some response. So when we come to Psalm 7, we have a psalm that is full of descriptions of who God is and what he is like. And the question for us today is this, uh, will we take David's inspired view of God, and by inspired, I don't mean one day he had this big inspiration. I mean, God breathed out his word through David, and it's recorded in the Bible. Will we take his view of God, or will we take the culture's view of God? And I don't know about you, but I'd rather take the God-breathed-out view of God than the culture's kind of manipulation of uh, some kind of God-being. Now, friends, let's just consider the context of this psalm for a little bit, the context of Psalm 7. And honestly, uh, we have three things that may be helpful to us. First of all, we have certainly an understanding that this is a psalm of David. So you have a character, you have somewhat of a context in his life. Secondly, there seems to be a progression here from Psalm 3 to, to Psalm 7. Psalm 3, when David, we're told, fled from his son Absalom. Psalm 4, we find David in distress. Psalm 5, we find David sighing and crying out to God for help. In Psalm 6, we find David in deep personal anguish. 
I'm languishing, he says. My bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. And here in Psalm 7, which is David is now singing, it's a a psalm about Cush. And that brings us then to the third thing, and that is the description that we're giving here that really helps kind of give a context of what's going on. All right, Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, what is a, a Shigion? I want to say it's a small crawling animal or something like that. We really don't know. Uh, scholars have tried to figure this out. They really don't know what a Shigion is. Obviously, it has something to do with the, the way you sing it. Maybe it's the meter or maybe it's just the style. We're not exactly sure. So I'm not going to spend much more time about it than that. But what we do know is what the next line says, right? Which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, if you're thinking of David and you're thinking of Benjamite, there should be some bells flashing and sirens going off in your head. See, in the biblical record of David, which you find primarily in First and Second Samuel, we don't find any character by the name of Cush. And so we don't have a specific record of the specific event, which sometimes the headings do connect us to that. But David did have an adversary who was from the tribe of Benjamin, and his name was King Saul. Now, it's possible and likely that Cush, as a Benjamite, was one of Saul's men, and that during one of David's many flights from Saul, that this particular individual had given David a very hard time, which would be an understatement, much like Shimei does, in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So let's look at 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 8. I just want to read this to kind of maybe get a little bit of a shape of of what likely is happening here. 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 and following. When King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of, the king, uh, uh, of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. I don't know about you. You probably haven't had a Shimei in your life like that. Maybe you have. But I think it's likely that what's happening in the psalm is David had some encounter with someone who had this kind of tone, this kind of accusation. But it's also noting that the reference to David's enemies in our psalm now tend to be both in the singular and in the plural. So it's not just one man. In fact, if you look at our psalm, verse 1, you have pursuers. You have, uh, in verse 6, you have enemies. But then also you have in verse 4, my friend and my enemy. Now I'm just trying to lay the foundation to say there's something happening here in the backdrop of this psalm that is causing David to sing or to write this particular psalm. So it's possible and likely that Cush is a representative or a leader of a thinking and behavior that is against David or of a group of people that are against David. 
And notice now the emphasis on the words of Cush. See, apparently David never heard the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Because he wouldn't have written this psalm if that were true. And the reality is, friends, that words do hurt, don't they? What people say against us, the false accusations that are thrown at us, they hurt, they're painful. So the trial or the concern that David is initially dealing with is likely some form of slander or false accusation against him. And the psalm is David's plea for God to judge his enemies and vindicate him as one of his righteous ones. Or to put it differently, God, please vindicate me from the slander of my enemies and exercise justice. And we can put all that in this proposition. This is a believer's cry for God or to God for justice or for vindication. I wonder, have you ever stood in those shoes when you've been falsely accused of something? When there is slander going on about you, your character, maybe your thoughts, maybe your beliefs. Maybe it's in the context of church where people are accusing the pastor or a church worker of being unloving, not caring, or falling short in their word ministry. Or maybe it's in the context of of the courtroom where a lawyer is looking to discredit your character simply to win a case. And he creates a story that is fabricated from some events, but he puts it together in such a way to lead people to think that you're a certain kind of person when you're not. Or maybe it's in the context of school that's always full of gossip, right? And you're given this bad reputation because people are saying things about you, but you know it's all lies. Or maybe it's in the context of marriage where your spouse is making claims, accusing you of thoughts and behaviors that in your heart you know are not true. Or it's in the public arena where people are, are, are seeing that you're a Christian and they backfill that with all the bad examples of Christianity out there. And here you are, slandered, false accusations. Friends, there's all sorts of situations we may find ourselves in where people are turning against us and are making false accusations or slanderous accusations and they hurt and we are confused and we're discouraged, and we're despondent. Well, Psalm 7 has something to say to us about that, specifically, but also then in generally, just about being in distress with people. Because in the psalm, we are introduced right at the end of verse 17, the Lord Most High. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe... That our God, Yahweh, is the Lord Most High. In other words, He is exclusive. We're not living in a world where there's all sorts of different gods floating around. No, there is one God. Yahweh is His name. One God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the one who not only created the universe, He sustains the universe, and He is presently at work in the universe. And this morning, I want you to notice four things about God Most High. I'll give them to you quickly here. He's the God who knows. He's the God who rules. He's the God who acts. And he is the God who is worthy. First of all, 
Our God knows, verses 1 through 5. When David puts his quill in the ink and begins to write on his parchment, he does so by drawing our attention to the fact that God knows us. And he knows what we're going through day by day. He's not somehow distracted up in heaven. Oh, man, I wish I had seen you, man. I would have helped you if I had. No, he always knows. And there's two things we're told here that he knows. First of all, he knows our trials. David appeals to God for help. And as he does that, there's three things here about our trials. He says, first of all, he is my God. Don't pass by this. He says, oh Lord, my God. He's saying, Yahweh, you are my God. You are the God who is the great I am, the covenant-keeping God, and you are my God. Now, don't, don't blow by this, because it's such a familiar expression. This is such a personal expression. Now, friends, this reminds me, I don't know if you, if you connect the dots here, but this reminds me of how King Saul responded to Samuel when he was confronted by the prophet having come back from the battle with the Amalekites where he was told that he was to destroy every living thing. And just pick this up, 1 Samuel 15, verses 14 and 15. Just listen as I read. And Samuel said, when the, when, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spread the best of the sheep and of the oxen. See what he's doing? He's distancing himself from the responsibility of the people. But notice what he says next. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. And then... In verses 19 through 21, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the, the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I just want you to notice the difference there. Because David is saying Yahweh is my God. Saul is saying Yahweh is your God. There's a distancing going on, isn't there, with Saul? He's not saying, this is my God who's given me these instructions. This is your God, Samuel. Oh, man. Israel made such a mistake when they chose Saul, right? I mean, he was, he was there, he was functioning, but he wasn't the one who truly wanted Yahweh as his God. Friends, if you have a living personal relationship with God, then he is my God. If not, then he's your God. Let me speak to the young people for a minute. Your parents are trying to lead you in the ways of God. Their goal is to move you from saying, I'm going to conform myself to your God and praying and hoping that one day you will say, this God you've been pointing to is my God. It's my God. Is he your God today? David says, this is my God. Not only that, he is my refuge. 
What does it mean for God to be our refuge? It's saying that God is both my protector and my comforter. And as I take refuge in him, there's really two things that are going on. It's an expression of who, uh, who God is for me. He is my refuge, my protector, but it's also an expression of my trust in him. You take refuge in that which you feel will keep you safe. So this is, this is just as much talking about David as it is talking about God. David sees Yahweh as the place, as the person that he can take refuge in. And God, of course, is the one who provides that. Psalm 91, uh, we read in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So friends, do you have a personal relationship with God? Can you say, God is my God? Do you trust God? Do you find your hope in him? Do you have confidence that he is always at work to act on your behalf? He's my God, he's my refuge, but he's also my deliverer. Now we get to the heart of the struggle. Notice what it says here. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So David is asking for his personal God now, the one he has taken refuge in, to save him and to deliver him from those evil pursuers. And so it's possible here that that Cush is referring to this group of people that are out to get David. And if you're familiar with the David story at all, you, you knew that David was just like always at war with people, right? I mean, he was at war with Saul and his men. And then he was at war with the Philistines. So it's like, you know, you're watching not only the enemy in front of you, but you're watching the enemy behind you. And then as he went out to war, there was all sorts of people that were trying to kill David. I mean, just living a life of of battle. Now, I don't know of anyone here this morning who had enemies or has enemies quite like David had. Now, friends, the principles, though, still remain true for us. We don't necessarily fight physical battles, but we fight spiritual battles. We fight battles that are uh, battles in the arena of principalities and powers and spiritual forces. And those powers of darkness often use people and their lives. Now notice why David is calling on God to save him. Why he's calling on God to deliver him. Because he's saying this, because God, if you don't save me, My enemies are going to come like a lion chasing down its prey and ripping its limbs apart. That's what's going to happen if you don't deliver me. David is not trying to stiff arm God. David is appealing to his very personal God. This is right what he's doing. And it's not that God doesn't know. God knows fully what's happening here. But David is rightly appealing to God and his tender care of one of his children. God, our God, is our refuge, and he knows our trials. And if it's his will, he will deliver us. Not only does God know our trials, but he also knows our hearts. What what David does next is make an oath. It's kind of an oath statement, appealing to his innocence. And notice the the if-then structure in verses 3 through 5. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, 
Then let every enemy pursue my soul, overtake it, and let him trample on the ground. David is saying, God, you know my heart. You know that I have left, sorry, I have not done any of these things. And he really is a, you know, in, in the same category as another person in the Old Testament who has a book with his name as the label. And it's the man Job. And I want to invite you to turn to Job 31. Because Job does the same thing here that David does. We're not going to read all of it, but I just want to highlight just a few. 16 times Job asked God an if-then question. Look at verse 5 of Job 31. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. Verse 7. If my steps turn aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. Verse 9. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. Verse 13. If I have rejected uh, the, the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. If, 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 then, then, then. You see that over and over throughout this chapter. So Job isn't saying that he's done any of these things. You get that. But he is stating them as a form of an appeal of innocence. And in verse 35, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. (laughs) And dear friends, when others are accusing us of things that we know are not true, there is one who knows. He is the Lord, the Most High God. Now be warned, don't even think of using God as your witness to win an argument when you know good and well that you are really guilty of something that someone is claiming, but simply don't want to admit it. God knows our hearts. He knows our trials. Our God knows. Now, omniscience and God's omniscience is good, and it's also rough, right? Because he knows the bad stuff, but he also knows the good stuff. But if you understand how God works and you're a child of his, you're thankful for the fact that he knows. Not only does our God know, but our God secondly rules. And here, David describes the Most High God using the motif of judge. Verse 6, he says, you have appointed judgment. Verse 8, the Lord judges the people. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge. So we begin by just identifying, first of all, that David appeals to God's righteous anger. Notice here that David appeals to God's righteous anger in verses 6 and verse 11. And these kind of like are top and tail of this section. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, how? In your anger. Verse 11, a God who feels indignation every day. Now David understands, friends, that God feels anger and God gets angry. And that might surprise some of you. I mean, I thought that God was a God of love. I thought that God just wants to go around and give people big hugs. But God 
what we're told here is feels indignation every day. Friends, for God to be a God of love, he must also be a God of anger. True love gets angry at those things that are evil and brings harm to people. When God looks down on his creation and sees a young man entering Robb Elementary School in uh, Uvalde, Texas, and fatally shooting 19 students and two teachers and wounding 17 others, God's anger is kindled. What kind of God would we have if he didn't get angry at that kind of stuff? A young boy or girl is being sexually abused by trusted family friends. You can be sure God's anger is being provoked. What kind of God wouldn't be provoked? Another child being ripped apart in the mother's womb. To be sure God's anger is being kindled. Friends, we must always remember that God's anger is not like our anger. See, our anger is emotional, undiscerning, and usually sinful. And if it's righteous anger, it doesn't remain righteous for long because it's tainted with sin. But God's anger is just. It's pure. It's righteous. And throughout these few verses, David inundates us with an awareness of both God's righteousness and his anger. So David, having put his trust in God as his refuge, now places his hope in God's righteous anger. David wants God to look on his situation and to be angry. God, be angry at their unjust accusations. Be angry at their slanders because I am your servant. Now notice how David prays. He says, arise in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fire, the fury of my enemies. Awake from me and judge. Up on the screen, you're going to have the New English translation of verse 6. I think it's helpful for us. It says, stand up angrily, Lord. Rise up with fury raging against my enemies. Wake up for my sake and execute the judgment you have decreed for them, right? Stand up, rise up, wake up. There's a sense of urgency for God to act on his behalf, for him to intervene now. God, you need to act and you need to act now. Well, who are you to tell God what to do? Listen, this is one of God's children who's despondent, who's in despair, and he needs the help of his heavenly Father. If you don't act now, you may just be picking up the torn pieces of my body. One commentator helpfully says, the purpose of this prayer so far has, has been not only to vent his own feelings of frustration and, and to express his indignation at the injustice done, but also to move God to have compassion on his child. It's like the child who in the middle of the night has a, a nightmare and comes running into his parents' room and he's saying to his father, Daddy, wake up, I need your help. 
He trusts his daddy. He takes refuge in his daddy. He puts his hope in his daddy. And if this is the case, he wants his daddy to act on his behalf. Now, verse 7 is a picture of God gathering David's enemies to take them to court. David is saying, God, take your seat over the assembly and judge them. Judge them for their words and their actions against me. Judge them for their unjust accusations. I'm putting my hope in your righteous anger to act on my behalf and to judge my enemies and to find them guilty. It's right, friends, to appeal to God's righteous anger. Secondly, he appeals for God's righteous judgment. God as ruler is identified in this text as the Lord who judges, but he is not an arbitrary judge swayed or manipulated by people's arguments. No, he, ju he judges righteously, we're told. And David says something extremely bold here, doesn't he? David acknowledged that it's the Lord, he judges the peoples, but then he goes on, he says, he says, judge me, O Lord. What David is after here is vindication. This word judge can be translated, vindicate me, O Lord. Restore my name, restore my reputation. And so David is saying, vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity. Now you read that, you say, wait a second. What about Romans 3? There is none righteous, there is no, not one. So how can David say to God, judge me according to my righteousness and my integrity? Rule of interpretation, friends. We must always seek to understand a word or a verse or a passage in its context. David is not claiming sinlessness or perfection here. He is simply claiming to have integrity and loyalty to God in light of the circumstances that he's facing. In other words, he's, he's claiming righteousness and integrity as it relates to the accusations that have been brought against him. And so David is asking for God to make a judgment with what he knows to be true and to vindicate him and his integrity. And friends, that's the same thing that Job does, isn't it? Job is not claiming to be without sin. He's claiming that he has not done anything that would warrant the kind of calamity that he's experiencing. His friends all hold to what's called a, a retribution theology, which says bad things happen to people who've done bad things. Good things happen to people who've done good things. Therefore, if you're experiencing bad things, kind of filter it back, you must have done something to cause this. And Job turns around and says, I know that that is not true. And in fact, if it were true, this wouldn't have happened to me because I would have walked with you. Not perfectly, but, but I, I have walked uprightly and a man, I've been a man of integrity and I've followed you to do all the right things. In fact, if anything would be true, I would be blessed. So for David asks for vindication and vindication is always a public matter. So he appeals to God's righteous anger. He appeals to God's righteous judgment. Third, he appeals now to God's righteous protection. He says, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and God who feels indignation every day. 
So David here is appealing for God and his righteous protection, but protection from what? When someone gets saved, what is it they are actually saved from? And we would typically answer by saying, well, you're saved from your sins. And that is true. But ultimately, you're not saved from something so much as you are saved from someone. Because when you're saved, you're actually saved from God himself. Because it's his wrath that is going to be poured out. And so the shield isn't so much a shield that is facing David's enemies, as it is a shield that is facing God. See what's going on here? Now the other passages... Ed this morning read about a shield in another text, and it's speaking more in its context about a shield against other people. But here, notice what it said here. My shield is with God. He's saying, I am shielded by God from God. This is what happens when we come by faith into the body of Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer is God going to pour out his wrath on us. Why? Because we have a shield. And who is our shield? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. The wrath of God does not penetrate that. The only way to be safe from God is to have him shield you from himself. That's why Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of a Happy God. Is that right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. R.C. Sproul rightfully says, we can't say sinners in the hands of an angry God anymore. We must say God in the hands of angry sinners. And I think he's right. It's not true, (laughs) but I think in our culture, that is the view. Our God rules, friends. David finds incredible comfort in God's anger, an anger which is perfectly righteous and exercises true justice. And the only way we can take comfort in the God most high is to be hidden or shielded by God from his righteous and just anger. The book of Naaman, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Did you get that? It's like, this is the Lord. he's, He's angry. And then he says, the Lord is good. He's an angry God, but he's a good God. Both of those things work together. So we have a God who knows, a God who rules, and now we have a God who acts. Our time is moving along here, so I need to move along here. And I want you to notice here, it's not just that God makes a ruling, God actually acts on that ruling. He just doesn't say something, he actually does something. But I want you to notice here what we see in verse 12. It says, if a man does not repent, then these are the things that are going to happen. 
And I just want to, I just want to throw this out there to make sure we understand this. This is the mercy of God. Because there's still an opportunity to do what? To repent. And so it's a reminder that God is merciful and the door of that mercy swings on the hinges of repentance through the gospel. The wicked can find mercy with God. There's still hope for the unbeliever. Friends, God is always kind to those who truly repent. But if you don't repent, you will face the full brunt of the judgment of the divine warrior. And we're giving two pictures here of God's justice at work. First of all, God is a weaponized warrior. Secondly, God is a sovereign orchestrator. First of all, as a weaponized warrior, don't you, don't you see that in our text here? If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his, his bow. He has prepared him uh, for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God goes out and pursues those that he is bringing judgment against. He comes to the aid as a mighty warrior dressed for battle. Now friends, God as a warrior makes King Kong and Godzilla look like ants beneath his feet and that's an understatement. If you're an enemy of God, one of his beloved children, if you're an enemy of God who's pursuing one of his beloved children, you had better look out because he's chasing after you. I wonder if we've allowed our culture's view of God or even of Jesus to affect our thinking. The cultural view sees Jesus as stripped of his manliness and sissified. He's presented with his penetrating blue eyes his long curls, his flowing robe. We don't see that in this description, do we? He is a mighty warrior. He is a mighty warrior. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is compassionate. He's tender. He's forgiving. He's loving. But at the same time, he is a warrior who will stand up for his own. Friends, that's anger. But it's also love. And friends, sometimes God chooses to act directly like he does with the warrior, and sometimes he chooses to act indirectly. And that's what we see next. He acts indirectly as a sovereign orchestrator. And that's the best way I could describe what was going on here. And notice, first of all, what we find here is the wicked man's character. It says, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. You have maybe have, have seen or, or heard about or read about the recent brouhaha in the news that people are offended at the idea that men cannot get pregnant. And I want to say, of course they can get pregnant. Don't you read your Bible? According to David and ultimately God, men don't get pregnant naturally with children, but they do get pregnant with mischief. David uses this illustration to describe the character of the wicked man. He conceives evil. He is pregnant with mischief. He gives birth to lies. And the psalmist uses imagery here that will later be picked up by James, where he says, desire is conceived in the heart 
And ultimately, what does it produce? Death. This is the wicked man's character, the wicked man's behavior now. He makes a pit, digging it out. And what's the point of him making a pit and digging it out? He's making that pit and digging it out because he wants to capture someone in his trap. That's what's going on there. This is, this is his behavior. But what happens? He falls into the hole that he has made. And here's the judgment. This is how God is working. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. His violence descends. It comes back to him. The point here is that God sometimes will act as a warrior chasing after people and other times you won't even see how he's working. But trust me, he's working. And he's turning things on their head. And we have one incredibly excellent example in the Bible. I don't have time to go through it all. But it's with the man called Haman in the book of Esther. Haman was second in command, raised up by the king. And Haman, however, hated the Jews. And so he orchestrated a plan that when the king was drunk, he would have him sign this decree that on a particular day, all the Jews in the area would be killed. And God, by his providence, works things out. That, that, uh, although Haman also had one particular Jew that he wanted to have killed and really, uh, really dishonored. So he built this 50-foot gallows. It's possible that it was a Persian style of execution, which was more of a, of a, of a pole with a spike on it where you'd be impaled. But it would be 50-foot high, in other words, so that everyone can see it. <coughs> and at the end of the story, the whole plot is turned around. Haman is exposed. The one Mordecai, who was supposed to be impaled or hung from these gallows, is replaced by Haman himself. Turns around on his head, or in this case, in his belly. Friends, the wicked will have their day in court before a sovereign God. God directs, or acts directly as a warrior. He acts indirectly as a sovereign God orchestrating his judgment. Now, we may not see it. That's okay. Number four, not only is God, the fact that God knows, that he rules, he acts, but we have a God who is worthy. <laughs> Don't we? And what we have here at the end is just this wonderful verse of praise. In the light of all of this, David has moved from distress to this place of, I will give to the Lord the thanks to his righteousness, and I will sing praises to the name of the Lord most high. So although the psalm begins with David in distress, it ends with this thanksgiving and praise to God. He is worthy to be praised, even in our distress. The seventh psalm is a great encouragement to us. Yet the striking thing is as far as we can tell, David writes this psalm at a time when he had not yet obtained the earthly justice from God that he was seeking. I just ponder that. He goes through this, this whole process of coming before the Lord and pouring his heart out, and yet he comes to him and prays, but vindication has not been experienced yet. He did the right thing. 
He came to God. He appealed his innocence. He called for God to judge. He reflected on uh, the, the judgment of the, a mighty warrior. He, he gave thanks, sang praises, but there's no indication of any earthly resolve. And friends, there's, there's a need for us to realize that God may not publicly vindicate us in this world, in our lives. But he will vindicate us one day. We have a God who is worthy. Let's just bring this down now to a close. The reality is, friends, you and I will encounter a lot of injustice in this life. People will do unjust things against us. They'll spread lies. They'll accuse us of thoughts and ideas that are simply untrue. And this is all the result of living in a sin-cursed world. Don't forget that. Yet when we are in distress, we can come to Psalm 7 and find comfort and hope in a divine assurance that there will be vindication in this life, maybe in eternity, certainly. And the process of turning to the Lord in times of distress will allow us to be reminded of who God is and what he is like. And this will continue to shape our hearts. So honestly, it may not change the circumstances that we're going through, but it will change the, the heart orientation and perspective in those circumstances. And I was struck as I was studying the psalm. If you were here last week and you were with us in, in Acts chapter 16, if you remember, Peter and Silas encountered the slave girl, and she's, she's saying, you know, these are the ones who, who are serving the, 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 the Most High God, and they're preaching salvation and stuff, right? And they're thrown into jail unjustly simply because of what they're doing. And what do we find them doing? Singing praises. And what happens? At the end, they're vindicated publicly. I mean, I'm just like, okay, slide into Psalm 7. We have the same thing that's going on here, don't we? It's a reminder that God, is, God still knows, he still rules, he still vindicates. And this morning, I just want to end by asking this question. What does, it, what does it mean to turn to the Lord in times of distress? I just have five Five things I just want to share with you by means of application, by means of kind of pushing you uh, to, to go back to this passage and think it through. Number one, it means fighting through your sinful feelings and emotions so you can look into the face of God and approaching God honestly and with integrity. Fighting through, you know, there are times when you're on distress and you're like, I, I'm so angry, I can't turn to God. Now, what I want to say, friends, is, is in your anger, fight to turn to God. It's like you're, you're walking against this mass of people, so to speak, and all the people represent all this, these feelings of anger that you're going through. You've got to fight through that and say, God, I've got to see your face. Secondly, it means approaching God with honesty and integrity, letting him know the fullness of your distress. Right? God, this is what I'm going through. This is, this is what I'm feeling. This is what my heart is saying. This is what's going on. This is what they've done to me. God's okay with you being raw. That's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms. Number three, it means listening to God through his word. Now that could be because you have your Bible open or it could be the word that you've already hid in your heart now that is coming to its surface in that time of need. 
listening to God through his word. And in doing that, you're reminded of who God is. What he's like. What he's wanting to do. What he promises. What is true. Number four, it means having laid it out before God, you live righteously before your fellow man. Someone speaks slanderously about you or a false accusation or some other kind of distress is not an excuse for you to live unrighteously. And in order to maintain that righteous living, what do you need to do? You need to come before the face of God to, to help you get perspective so that you don't turn around and step out of your home or in that situation and start to say, Bleh, and all this evil's come out. And you say, no, I have a God who is seated on his throne, who knows what is going on, and he is ruling, and he's a judge, and he exercises judgment on people. I'm going to leave it with him. The change in heart. Finally, it means leaving the timing and the extent of your vindication with God. We have a tendency to put limits on those times, don't we? I want it done now. And God may say, I'm not doing it now. But I will do it. And friends, this is the other part that's really hard. This is not up there. Remember, your distress, as awful as it has been, may be the means of a wicked and ungodly person's repentance. That goes against our sinful nature, doesn't it? They did this against me. They don't deserve to be the recipient of God's kindness. Yeah, well, he gave you kindness. He gave you grace in spite of the things that you've done. God is at work even through our calamities to draw people to himself. Lord, help us today. This, this psalm is a challenge for us in many ways. We may not necessarily be the ones receiving the kind of accusations or slander at the moment. And yet, Lord, our culture is turning in such a way that we as a people, we as followers of you, may be the recipients of that really fast. And this kind of stuff might, might happen more often than we would like to think it would happen. So Lord, help us to develop, Lord, this, this commitment to come to you with our distress. Because you already know about it. You know our trial, you know our thoughts, you know our heart. And you are God who cares for his children. And Lord, you are a God who acts on their behalf. But Lord, we don't want to wallow in the mire of our self-pity and distress when we could be giving you thanks and singing songs about your greatness. Help us, Lord, to move from one place to the other, no matter the circumstances, and to do that, Lord, for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.